Uh, and visitors, by the way, you're invited to join us. We'd love for you to join us um, as we have our end of summer celebration. We told all of our regular attenders and members to make plenty of food, knowing that you would come. So uh, we're going to have it right up here. Normally, we're at the pavilion on the other side. But for the first time in our history, somebody reserved it for a wedding. And so we thought, well, we could go to the park right next door to the pavilion, 300 of us. But that would make it an interesting wedding, wouldn't it? <laughs> so we decided to do it right up here in the town, so that's fine. So afterwards, just bring, as you said, bring your uh, chairs and just go, we'll sit up there. There's places of shade and things like that. Okay, we are finally, some of you are going to go, whew, coming to the end of a year and a half discussion on the house that God built. We started a year and a half ago when we went to Leviticus. By the way, every now and then they don't put a clock out here. Whenever they don't do that, that means I can talk as long as I want. There's no clock there. So I get to just talk, talk, talk. Hey, Robert, can you hear that humming sound? So um, we started with Leviticus, and, uh, and that was, I thought it was a really fun discussion to have. And uh, when I said we we're going to study Leviticus, several people in the church came up to me afterwards and said, have you, uh, have you actually read Leviticus? <laughs> you see, Leviticus is, when you look at the whole Old Testament, Leviticus is the primary theological book. It's a book where he sits all of these slaves down and says, I'm going to teach you what it means to be priests. My own personal perspective is every chapter in Leviticus changed world history. Okay? Everyone. And so, for example, when he talks about life is in the blood, none of the nations believe that. They thought blood was where demons were released, evil things were released. And that's why when, when women had, uh, were given birth to a child, they were taken out of the village quickly, just in case demons, because, I mean, kids died, and moms died, and so that was one of the ways they understood it. So if we didn't have Leviticus 16 through 19, where he talks about clean and unclean, and life is in the blood, how would we understand the, the shed blood of Christ? Change world history. Leviticus is the theological book of the Old Testament. All the wisdom literature, they're providing ways of understanding it through a poetic language, psalms, proverbs, things like that. The historical books are telling us how the kings did as far as obeying the law or not. All the prophets were warning the nation and the kings as they turned away what's going to happen in God's future glory. So then we get to the New Testament, and we realize that Leviticus is a blueprint for the New Testament. Everything in Leviticus is talked about in the New Testament. Priesthood, sacrifice, clean, unclean, the shed blood of the animal, all of that. It's all talked about again in the New uh, the new te- what we call the New Testament, the New Covenant. And so Leviticus is a critical book, and that began our journey of the house that God built. And we went through, and we looked during the summer at the temples. So for those of you that were here, remember that, where God dwells. We asked the question there. Moses is walking along, and he sees a burning bush, and he walks over to the burning bush, and he's looking at it because it's not being consumed, and God says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. What made this ground holy but the ground 30 feet over, not holy. What made it holy? God's presence. That's why Paul can say, if you are in a marriage 
with an unbeliever stay there because they're sanctified because of you because wherever you go you bring the holy spirit and that ground is holy ever think of it that way when you walk up to your friend who doesn't know jesus and you give them a hug they are enveloped by god's presence that's what that means so the dirt that was by the burning bush was holy and the dirt over here was not wherever you go you take the holy spirit with you into their life that's how important each of you are that is right there when you give your non-christian friend a hug you tell them you love them they're standing on holy ground they just don't know it my picture of the uh, judgment seat of Christ, when he divides the sheep and the goats, the sheep go one way, goats go the other. The sheep go to a fun place. We get to sit there, and here's how I picture that happening. Uh, I've told some of you, I'm going to invite you up to sit there. God's going to show me a little video. and said, I want you to look at this. Okay, it's only a 30-second video. And I'm going to look at it and go, that's a Delhi airport. I've flown through there many, many times. He's going to say, right, right, right. You talked to Daniel's Donamuthu for 30 seconds, and you were very kind to him, and his heart softened just for a little bit because my spirit was present. And then you caught on your plane to go the rest of the way, and I sent him right after that to another Christian who shared Christ with him. That's how much that 30 seconds was worth. And we get that from Leviticus. Everything in Leviticus, it forms the blueprint. And what does the blueprint need? It does not a house. The blueprint is just a piece of paper. The blueprint needs a builder. That's what happened at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. That's why both Peter and Paul can refer to us as a spiritual house, a spiritual building, a spiritual temple. Because the Holy Spirit is building this temple, this building, this house that God envisioned in Leviticus. And this is it right here. We're looking at it. So that raises my first question we're going to finish today. Um, what is the church? What is it? Maybe even more importantly, why go? Why go? You know, the days of going out of being duty-bound have largely passed. If you have gray hair, you remember that, that generation, I was raised in that generation, where you go to church because it's the right thing to go, to do. That's not true today. People don't go to church just because they want to, especially in a place like this where they can be hiking, four-wheel driving, bicycling all along the way, sailing out in the reservoir, and I love doing all that stuff, right? Why come to church? Why? What is church? We spent a year and a half talking about the house that God built. It seems like that's the fundamental question. What is church? It's a local community of believers who are striving to be like Christ. That's what it is. Is it worth going? Apparently you think so because you showed up today. Or maybe it's because of the potluck. Is it worth going to church? And so when you talk about the church, I want to talk about a few things about it so you can understand what makes us different than every other institution. 
every other organization. Technically, we are an organism. There's only one church. There's only one body, one savior, one mediator, one salvation. There's only one church. It's worldwide. We are a local fellowship of believers is what we are. That's part of this grand, grand story, this grand narrative. I have friends all over the world that are meeting, some like in Nepal met yesterday, they meet on Saturdays. Some like in Mozambique are meeting today where they just would have finished already. Um, and so it's a, we're part of something very, very large. I'm gonna say a word about leadership because the leadership of the church is very unusual. I'm gonna read a quote. I told you I was reading this book by uh, uh, Scott McKnight. Thank you, Judy Deal. To remind me in smaller letters, is actually his daughter, Laura McKnight Barringer. I didn't realize it was his daughter until Judy pointed that out to me. So this is a father and a daughter who went through the Bill Hybels debacle at Willow Creek and the collapse of that church. They went through that the day he was exposed. Um, it was reported by about, if you read the forward, about eight women came forward and talked about his inappropriate behavior with them. And uh, in, in the beginning, his daughter asked Scott, do you think this is do you think this is real? And he said, do you know these women? These seven or eight women? And she said, yeah. Do we trust them? Yeah, then it's real. And that was the beginning of this cascading effect all across the country where these pastors are being um, exposed. You know, I had a Catholic friend of me say, who, so at least it's the Protestants and not the Catholics. And I said, well, you guys did your time in the barrel 20 years ago. <laughs> and all the priests were exposed for the thing they shouldn't be doing. And today it's the, it's the Protestant pastors who are being exposed. And so he talks about leadership in here. And here's what he says. The leadership of the church is very peculiar because churches don't function based on hierarchies and reporting relationships. They function based on the interdependence of gifted individuals working together to honor, worship, and serve God under the exclusive leadership of Jesus Christ and empowered and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So did you hear that? It's peculiar because they don't function based on hierarchies and reported relationships. Our, uh, our um, chairman of our board, Ryan O'Dell, and our vice chair, Steve Hill, are both rotating off of this year. We just voted on our new elders and they've met their term limits. So we're in the process of selecting new elders and uh, if the elders approved it, I talked to Tim Morris about becoming the next chairman. And Tim and I had coffee um, just about three or four days ago. And um, we were talking about the role that we play. And one of the things I've told the elders as a senior pastor, I will never, I will never teach the elders through a complex moral issue. Okay, when I first got here, they said, would you teach us about this so we can decide what to do? And I said, no, I'm not gonna do that. And they said, why, you're our senior pastor. And it's like, yeah, what's that got to do with it? My job is to quit and not teach you how to think and how to decide. And so as we went through the discussion, I asked them, they were unsure about that. And I said, what are your criteria for deciding to obey a New Testament command or not? And they said, what do you mean we obey the Bible? And I said, why are your wives wearing gold jewelry? New Testament talks about that three times. And one of them said, well, 
that was cultural. I said 100% of the Bible is cultural. That can never be a criterion. So what are your criteria for you deciding to obey? You think of all the texts that we don't do today, the text on slavery, for example. Okay? Why don't we? And they said, I said, what are your criteria? And I heard these magic words that I just love. You know, we're not really sure. We've just done what our senior pastor told us. You know what that means? It's my church. It just became the Jim Howard Church because honestly, they hired it. I'm more theologically educated than all the elders put together. That's not a criticism. That's just the reality. They hired me to be, you know, to bring theology into the context. And if they get into the habit of letting me tell them what they should be doing, then it becomes my church and I don't want to be my church. I don't want anything to do with that. So I said, what I'll do is I'll give you the questions you have to answer and I'll teach you. We'll work together on, and I'll equip you to how to make good decisions. You're the elders, you decide. Otherwise, it's the Jim Howard Church. And that's one of the things that's coming out from all these studies with these celebrity pastors. It's their church. They dictate what happens. So Tim and I were talking about this and the other side of it is his responsibility as a chairman is said, just like my, not my responsibility is to equip, not to tell you how to make decisions or what decisions to make. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm in for a good debate. Ask any of the elders. I love arguing on any passage, debating on it, budgets, ministry plans, all that stuff. I'm up for a good debate. But when it comes time to actually work through a moral issue, take a back seat. They got to decide the elders. And we have fantastic elders. They know how to work through these issues. So Tim, as the chairman, he and I were talking, and I said, think about what a good leader is. First of all, in the New Testament, the concept of leader as a position is almost always negative, except when it's referring to Jesus. He is our leader. You have the leader of the synagogues, the leader of the Gentiles, that sort of thing. It's almost always negative, but the verbal aspect, the, the, the verb to lead others is always positive. Because we're leading people to Christ. So the church is not about leadership and hierarchy. So I said his role primarily was not to guide the elders to a specific decision, but to create an environment where the elders can debate and laugh and talk and argue and then make a decision. That way there's no one person guiding guiding the church. We have a group of very godly men and women who do that for us. Jesus talks about that in Mark chapter 10. It's one of my favorite passages. It makes me laugh every time I read it. Jesus just predicted his death. Verse 35, he just said, I'm going to die. They're going to kill me, flog me, kill me. Three days later, I'll arise. Now you would think the disciples would be, what? Nope, here's the next verse. <laughs> then James and John, sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. We don't know. I mean, you don't know. Oh, no, no. Sorry. Skip the verse. Let one of us, James and John, sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory when you come into your kingdom. Okay, in other words, one of the gospels says, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptized I'm baptized with? We can, they answered. I mean, think of this audacity. They're getting ready to flog me and kill me. Okay, fine, fine, fine. We want to, when you enter your kingdom, we want to be on the left and right. <laughs> this is the world we live in, isn't it? 
I mean, this describes politics to me. We read a book, The Elders, last year on uh, time to build. It's an analysis of all the institutions in our country and how they have collapsed. You see, the institutions used to be about forming people, and now they've become platforms to, be, to achieve celebrity status. Everybody wants a mic. Everybody wants likes. Everybody wants social media followers, don't they? And they stopped performing, functioning the way they were designed, including the church, which is why we've been on this year and a half journey to say, what does this house look like that God is building? He goes on and he says, well, you're going to drink the cup that I drink, and you can, we'll find out if you're able to do that. But then he goes on. You know that those who are regarded as rulers or leaders of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. You know, in the ancient world, the word authority was used to describe the role of the husband over the wife in the household codes. Do you know that Peter and Paul both did away with that language? For the first time in history, they introduced a new concept. Submit yourselves to one another. You know what that means? Authority is a legal term. You don't obey the police, you get a ticket. Submission is a term of equals where you put each other first. First time in world history, as far as I can find. That's, that's countercultural. So he said, they lord it over you, they exercise authority over you. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must be the slave of all. So when Tim and I were having coffee, I said, you know what that means, Tim? We read this. That means that you and I are the chief slaves. That's what that means. I happen to get the glory because I'm the one setting up here with a microphone. But when we do ministry planning, it's not top down. It's the bottom up. Some of you have been on leadership teams where we've gone and dreamed with you. For the children's advisory board, what do you want for your children? They're your children, they're not mine. I've already done my time. Dream. And we let the mothers and the fathers pick what goals they want. And that goes into our ministry plan from the ground up. You must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Find me any other, any other religion that says that about their God. Any other. We are so unique. Well, the other, another thing about the church, this leadership is unusual, its planning is inverted, okay? If you think of the way the corporations work, we're here today, and we want to get down here tomorrow, so we're going to figure out how to get to there. We want more uh, users, we want more customers, we want whatever it is that we want. It's the opposite for us. We invert the, lead, the, the program. We invert the whole process. We already know what God's will is. It's captured right in here. We don't have to figure that out. In everything, give thanks for this is God's will for you. It's pretty clear. People come, I want to know God's will. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 5. And everything, give thanks. This is God's will. No, I want, to do, I want to know who I'm going to marry, what my career is. And everything, give thanks. This is God's will for you. His will is so clearly identified, we already know where we're going. That's why we've quoted 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 numerous times. Based on the work of Christ, we no longer evaluate anything 
any person according to the world's standards. Not one. There's no more scarlet A for adultery. There isn't. There's no scarlet H for homosexuality or whatever it is that you're wrestling with. You fill the sin and we'll put the capital letter there. He said, we no longer evaluate the world, people according to the world's standards. It's very simple. If anyone is in Christ, they are part of the new creation. The old is what? Gone. The new is what? Here. You see, when it comes to Christian leadership in a church, uh, it's inverted. We already know what God's will is. We already know. Avoid sexual immorality, for this is God's will for you. This is why my highest priority has been for nine years, marriages. Marriages. If our marriages are failing, guess what? We're just telling the world out there that we don't believe our own theology about marriage. You know what the antidote to abuse is? A good marriage. You know what the antidote to pedophilia is? A good marriage. That's the antidote. So when I got here, that was my highest priority. And I started, it's very simple. I started with the staff my first or second month, and I said, um, is there any marriages or families that are in trouble? Um, and they said, well, isn't that gossip? No, we get paid to help them. <laughs> it's not gossip, you know? So they gave me a name. They weren't sure what I was going to do with it, so I picked up the phone and called, and I said, hey, uh, Charlie, I'm sitting in a, the, a meeting staff meeting at Dillon Community Church, and I asked if there's any marriages or families that are in trouble and they mentioned that you and your wife might be struggling a little bit. Can I take you guys out to lunch and see if I can encourage you and help you? They were stunned, the staff. You know what, the, you know what they said when I got there? We didn't think anybody noticed, much less cared. We're already talking to divorce attorneys. Okay, you really want to pull that trigger real fast? And so I've done that several times a year over the years. I said, I'm not an attorney. I don't need facts. I just want to know who's struggling so I can run alongside and say, can I help you? All right? So we, we don't have to worry about where we're going. We already know that. We already know the will of God. The real challenge is we invert it. So we already know this. How are we going to get there? The children's ministry does it very differently than the women's ministry, which does it very differently than the Jeep club. But we're all moving in the same direction. And then finally, the purpose of the church is countercultural because we are, uh, we are to bring about redemption and restoration. We don't exist for profit, position, or power. We simply don't. We're here to love people. This is the next verse, the one I just quoted to you. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. Listen to this. All of this, the old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Here's the heart and soul of why we exist, right here. Namely, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's why just a few verses before, he can say we no longer evaluate People according to the world's standards. The new has come. If you're in Christ, the old is long gone. The Lord's no longer counting your sins against you. He has committed to us the message of real reconciliation. Therefore, we are Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through.
through us. That's why we love people. That's how he makes his appeal, through us. And then you got this wonderful verse. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. If you're here today and you don't know the Lord, we are imploring you. We're inviting you to step into this incredible world with this good, good, very good God. That's why all summer we've been looking at goodness. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. That describes who God is. Be reconciled to God. Remember last two weeks ago I talked about justice and I made the comment that the word justice, righteousness, justification, they all come from the same, what we call the same Greek lemma, the same Greek root. They overlap. These ideas overlap, okay? And so I do believe in imputed righteousness. So for those of you that hear me say something different, I don't mean it. I'm just not sure it comes from this verse. It comes out of Romans. But when you look at it here, he says, God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin to become our sin so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. If you take that word righteousness out and you put in the word justice, we are agents of justice. We are to care for the poor. We're to worry about marriages that are failing. We're to worry about injustices that are being done. Everything that's broken, that's going wrong. We should be the front runners on that. We should care about environmentalism all the way to marriages and families. That should be our responsibility. So we implore you to come to Christ and taste, see that the Lord is good. When we become a business, we cease to fulfill our mission. So what does it mean to be like Christ? What does that actually mean? It's a lifestyle that is completely different from that of the world. It's very countercultural, backwards, upside down, and stunning. When we live the way the scriptures tell us to live, it is stunning to a world. When we forgive others because they're worthy of it, when we love others because they're worthy of love, when we decide not to fight over politics, now don't get me wrong, I'm in for a good debate. I love debates. But not with an edge to it. Not for the purpose of hurting people. Because our primary mission to love. By this, I give you a new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the right politics. Doesn't say that. If you have the right view on the Supreme Court decision on gay marriage. If you have the right view on Roe versus Wade. No, it doesn't say that, does it? If you have what? Love. Say it. If you have love for one another, that's how everyone will know. Oh, vote your conscience, okay? Be very invested. Get involved. But don't divide over it. That's why I asked you a few weeks ago, I'm not asking you to give up your theological conviction. I'm asking you to sacrifice for the sake of the gospel in relationship. The person next to you, I guarantee you right now, 100%, I, I, I bet everything I have, the person next to you, there's some place where you disagree on politics, Supreme Court decisions, what's happening in the world, you're going to disagree somewhere. 
sacrifice for the sake of love, for the sake of the gospel. And that's what makes our lives so countercultural and stunning. Because this world right now is tired, it's confused, it's disoriented, they're struggling. They don't know what to do. They're angry, they're divided, okay? And we, we know the answer. We can have a lot of fun debating, but we can come right back and say, love. I said to the early group of elders, and I probably said it a couple times that time, get into a good debate, okay? Let's debate over passages. This is really fun. Now, we're not going to give. We're not going to give in on our 10 statements. I believe in the Trinity. I believe in the ministry of the Spirit. I believe on and on and on. Our 10 statements. We're not going to bend on that. But everything outside of that, if you guys don't write it down, we can have fun. Let's debate. You can fight. You can argue. You can debate. You can even draw blood. I don't care as long as we go out for a drink together afterwards. Unity is our number one gift that God has given us that produces joy. It's a life. What does it mean to be like Christ? It's a life of choosing to follow Christ and to put him first rather than the world's pursuits. It's choosing to follow Christ to the cross. And think about this verse in John. John chapter 8 Let me find it. Well, I obviously read down the wrong verse. It's where he talks about, you cannot be my disciple unless you take up your cross and follow me. Okay, pause. We've turned that into a metaphorical idea. What did the first century Christians hear who saw crosses lining the roads and people hanging on them, dying, dead, rotting? Unless you take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. It's choosing to follow Christ to the cross. You see, our job as elders and staff is to equip you and help you and run alongside and come running when you get into trouble. It's not to tell you how to live life. You got to figure that out. Remember, no human can convict, redeem, or transform another human. It's not possible. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. That's why I love hanging out with you. I've told you many times that um, don't stay stuck. Don't stay stuck. Whatever sin you're entrapped in, you're not the first, I guarantee you. I think I've heard it all in 45 years. Maybe I'm wrong. You're not the first. Just don't stay there. If you're in trouble, come get help. John, uh, Luke 6. I just love that passage. 637. Do not judge. Do not condemn. Because a standard, whatever you use, is going to be used against you. Okay? What's the next verse? Get that big log out of your eye. So I've told you many times, just come, don't stay stuck. Come to one of the staff, come to me, come to one of the elders. No judgment, no condemnation. Laughter. I may chuckle because you got yourself in a real bind, but that's not the end of the story. We will walk with you on the road to get you out of the bind. Okay, 
Let's finish with this. We're talking about the house that God built, and we're talking about goodness. And so a church that develops a culture of goodness, which we've talked about all summer, what does that look like? Well, first of all, goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. If you want to know who God is, look at Galatians 5.23, the fruit of the Spirit, 22 and 23. You can only give out of who he is, love, joy, goodness, kindness. I mean, you know the list, right? And so that's who God is, and that's who we are becoming in Christ. We must practice this. This is what we've talked about all summer. We must practice, and these are the topics we've covered. We must practice the habits of empathy and compassion, putting yourself in another's shoes and caring for them, extending grace, putting others first, telling the truth with transparency, being honest and open with each other about our failings and our shorting, our shortcomings. Really taking a look at that and saying, you know what? You're not the first one to go through this. I can't do it, but I'd love to give you a list of the 30 other people in our church that are going through the same sin you are. <laughs> Whatever sin you tell me, I guarantee you there's somebody here going through it. That's the way life is. So being honest, being transparent with the truth, promoting justice. And this is where I said, Justice in the world is about vengeance and punishment. But what does 1 John 4 say? Perfect love casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. God is overlooking our sins. We don't have to worry about that. So what does justice mean for us as Christians? What it means is that, and I, and I said there, I'm not afraid of harsh sentences and all that stuff. I'm not, don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying that. But my reason for it is God used that harsh sentence to crush them to break them so they can see the destructiveness of what they've done with their sin so they'll come back to repentance. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance and that's what true justice is about is to help us come to grips with the nature of our sin and how horrible it is and how destructive it is so that we repent and turn to him. That's what justice for, it's not about vengeance. It's not about punishment. It's about God doing his incredible, gracious work of repentance, helping a person. And finally, we talked last week about serving others. If we practice those things, you know what? We got nothing to be afraid of in this culture, nothing at all. But it starts with you as an individual, but it's not done there. It's only when that, what you're doing as individuals, becomes the very makeup, the heart and soul of who we are as a church. So when they look at us as a church, you can ask yourself the question, and they can ask it of the church. Are you in the habit of showing empathy and compassion? If you're not, we're not going to do it as a church. <laughs> are you in the habit of doing that? But how about us? When the, when the county looks at us, do we think this is a church that's filled with empathy and compassion? Extending grace. Are you in the habit of extending grace and forgiveness or vengeance? We can't get there as a church unless you do it as individuals. How about putting others first? Are you looking for ways to put others first? When the world looks at us, do they think, BCC, there's a church that puts others first. Transparency. We're not covering up sin. We're being honest about it. Most of you know, I, Nancy and I were talking, is there, do we have any 
any skeletons hidden in the closet that you guys don't know about or the world doesn't know about? The answer is no, not that I can think of. I mean, I'll tell you everything up here. That's not appropriate. But we have coffee. I don't mind telling you. Teenagers, they're very bold. They'll ask. <laughs> they want to know about my sexual brokenness? So I tell them. Because they're faced with those decisions right now. It's being honest and transparent with who we are. It's, it's being willing to sit down across the table from me, as some of you have done, and say, I'm sleeping with another woman. Okay, now I know the mess you're in. Okay? Sitting down and saying, what do you think of homosexuality? Oh, why are you asking that question? You don't have to worry. There's no shame. Transparency brings life. We talked about that. It brings life when sin comes out into the light. So promoting justice, serving others, is this who you are? Because if it's who you are, then it's who we are. Next week, we're back in the building. If you come here, have fun. We have a special treat. I hope you think it's special. Some of you have heard my son, Drew. He just graduated from seminary. He's been up here and preached. And uh, next uh, Sunday, he and I, we're going to do a congregational Q&A. You get to ask questions, and he and I are going to be up on the stage together. So you get to be some of the genera- see some of the generational differences on how we approach issues. So I asked him, I said, what do you think of this idea? Oh, awesome, Dad. Let's do it. So he's coming up next weekend. He's a hospital chaplain. He's the emergency room chaplain now at Denver Health Knife and Guns Club. That's where all the shooting victims from around the city go to. He's seen it all. So you get to ask your questions, and uh, we'll work to answer them. You can see how different we are. And then the next series we're going to do, we're moving away from the house that God built, and we're going to start taking a look at what does it mean to be like Christ? What does that actually mean? What are those words? We're going to go into that for the fall a little deeper. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for building a house that we are very proud to be part of, a house that you partner with us, Lord, a house where you, you forgive us, you show us grace, you don't punish us, you overlook our sins, a house where you lure us, you compel us, you invite us into grace. Thank you, Lord, for this incredible house that you're building around us, that we get to be a part of it. We're so grateful. In your son's name, our high priest, Jesus, we pray, amen.